Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Dr. Frankenstein would be rolling in his grave. Monstrosity the Card Game is a colorfully twisted strategic card game in which you'll discover your inner mad scientist, create a bizarre monster, and bring it to life. With over a million different possible monstrous combinations, no two games are the same. It's simple enough for beginners with a strategic depth that will keep you coming back to the table for more. The uniquely strange art and darkly humorous theme give life to its addictively fun competition. The best part? You can track it on Kickstarter right now. Check out kickstarter.com and search for Monstrosity, the card game, for more information. Welcome everybody to today's episode. We are going to be diving further into our storyteller's toolbox, and today we're going to start a series of episodes that are all about the role of the dungeon master or storyteller or game master or whatever title you decide to go ahead and choose for running your game. I know I've always been uh, preferential to the term storyteller because I think it describes what I do. All these terms, they all qualify to the same job. The person that is sitting behind the screen narrating the game and in control of the flow of what happens to the what happens in the game. And tonight we're going to be talking about a a particular aspect of uh, the storyteller's role, and that has to do with when the storyteller is building sandbox worlds uh, and how to uh, how to avoid railroading your players, and that really at the end of the day, how to make sure that your players' agency is a key characteristic of the game at your table. This is going to be a discussion where the storytellers, where the DMs out there, the GMs, uh, a great term for a new game that we have had the privilege to get a bit of a preview at and we'll be bringing to you a lot more of in this podcast, the referee will, will be handling. So all of those terms apply here. We really want to talk about this topic. It comes up from time to time. It's been on other podcasts. It's been on other shows at various times. It's been a discussion at many tables. It's even been a discussion at my tables, at Glenn's tables. And I'm sure in Josh's games, it has come up from time to time. So something everybody in the hobby is probably familiar with on some level, whether they knew the titles of these things or not, we've all dealt with it or we're all dealing with it. We're either doing it well or we're doing it badly. What we're trying to do is wrap some definitions around it, 
wrap some concepts around it, and then figure some ways to get better at the game as it relates to this topic. That's what we're here to do today. Really dive deep into this to help storytellers build a better game. And for players out there, listen well, because if you know the types of things that your storytellers are working towards for your benefit, that's going to allow you to understand and play the game at a better level as well. You'll kind of be able to play a better game, respond in a better way, and maybe think about how your role play at the table kind of deals with these topics or impacts these topics as well. So while it's very much storyteller focused, there is a significant player quotient to this discussion as well. You know, while we're talking about it, don't think that we automatically just, you know, started with the knowledge of this is what you need to do. We learned through many, many horrible, terrible mistakes that we inflicted on our players as we went along. And uh, throughout the episode, we'll try to entertain you and regale you with some of the tales of our past mistakes <laughs> that we've done. Uh, yeah. But these were hard, hard earned, hard learned lessons. So, yeah. you know, if they help you make a better story yeah. for you and your players, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And really, really want to say uh, hi and welcome back to Glenn. I know, Glenn, you've been you've been uh, uh, off on vacation for quite a while and you're coming to us all the way from Wisconsin. So uh, uh, in the in, in this in this in the vacation house. So, yeah, it's been a little bit crazy for me lately. Sorry, guys, that I've been kind of in and out. Should be back to normal on the next one. Thankfully, we know a fantastic editor that should be able to go ahead and clean you up in uh, in, in post and so that you sound uh, just as uh, mellifluous as uh, as always. So uh, excellent. Let's go. Wait, wait. What was that word? Eliflous. I was going to say that uh, the beauty of this moment is Josh and I worked through almost a month and a half of poor sound quality and tin canny echoey sound. And Glenn, by the time you were joining us, we were still right at the cusp of that. But by the time you recorded your first episode, we were out of that. So your first episode was really the beginning of the uptick in our sound quality yep. for Agreed. Almost all of us. I think I was almost two weeks behind that before I mean, my sound quality got better, give or take. You're only going back to where I was at the time you joined, so we should be fine. <laughs> and, you know, and chalk that up to things that we learned uh, by doing the podcast. And, uh, Liwanika, a fantastic parallel to how we learned to avoid railroading players. I mean, that is, look, the, the, the conceit is definitely that no storyteller likes to admit it. But every storyteller has accidentally done it where we've got a plot that we want to share, a story that we want to tell. We go through tremendous contortions to get our players to follow that plot. Maybe we only wrote one. Right. I mean, sometimes that's all that it comes down to is like we we planned a game session. We thought that we were going to go down path A. Path A is the only path that I really actually wrote. If the players go down path B, I I ain't got nothing there. So I'm going to have to take, you know, plot A all of a sudden becomes plot B if they decide to go left at the fork instead of right. You know, Um, and so like storytellers don't like to admit that we did that because Look, railroading is not great, and railroading is one of those things that absolutely removes player agency. They don't feel like they have any choice over what's going on at the table. Like, what the story that the storyteller wants to tell is going to happen regardless of what the players do, and that's not a great feeling. We have learned how to avoid that through practice and through messing it up and, you know, 
and, and and by having it happen to us, we're like, oh yeah, you know what? That's not really that's not really what I wanted. And I I really got to say that the thing that really got me to transcend that was storytelling live action games because the between the size of the of the games that you're running, um, but also the diversity of opinions and the diversity of stances and the player to player conflict. A million possible things could happen in any particular game session. I mean, we when I was running a Werewolf the Apocalypse game, we always used to refer to it as Plan Q. Like, we would sit down at our staff planning sessions, and we would come up with 10 plots that we thought might come up that night, just based on what had happened to the game before, or write-ups that said what players were thinking and what they thought that they were going to do. We'd come up with 5 or 10 different plots that could, at any moment, happen, and that all of us on staff had to be equipped to run. And we always knew that at some point in the evening, somebody would come up with plan Q and we just needed to know, okay, if the plan Q involves the wild, this is the storyteller that handles it. And if the story, if plan Q involves the worm, this storyteller handles it. And if like I was the Umbra guy, if, if my, if our players went off the rails and came up with the plan Q about some strange Umbra quest that they wanted to run. That was me. And so I needed to go ahead and take what the players wanted to do and spit out a um request. And the LARPing reference actually makes an awesome point for a couple of reasons. Because part of the reason that worked so well is the word team. That it wasn't just one guy. It wasn't just yep. on one person's shoulders. So that creates two things. One, you got more minds to help come up with story. It makes it a little bit easier. Uh, two, you got other fall guys, Right. But the most important thing is you're all running the game at the same time, different scenes going on at the same time. So you can't yep. have a 100% linear locked-in plot line. Everybody's got to have room to be flexible and move, and that really teaches you that piece. That applies something that that's something that players should think about too when they get frustrated about railroading. Just to defend us DMs out there from back when I used to make the mistakes, same gig. Keep in mind, it's one guy and he's trying to plan for all of you, right? And we work really hard. So when we get obsessed with we want our adventure to go, because damn it, I worked on this thing for 10 <laughs> hours. You are running it. <laughs> Remember, we're not getting paid. We're doing this for fun, too. So we're not trying. They're not your DM isn't trying to be a dick, but they're like, dude, you guys want to play. And I get it. You kind of want to challenge me. But if you don't throw me a bone here, we don't have anything to do tonight. So interestingly enough. The, and I'm going to go back to the LARPing as well, because that's where I think I upped my game. Like, I think I was a decent DM. And I've said previously that I became a storyteller after I ran my first LARP, right? And I had been a DM for a long time, uh, a long time DM. Uh, but I was probably at that stage that I ran my first LARP, 50-50. Like, I played... In two, I played in two games, uh, tabletop games, and I DM'd two tabletop games, and I was looking at starting to tabletop DM a third. But so I was pretty, I was, I was feet in both worlds at that time when I started the LARP thing, and I very quickly went into st uh, storyteller mode in the LARP. Now, part of the reason why I took on the title storytellers because that's what it was called in Mind's Eye Theater. But what I learned was how to craft a story in a different way. And for the storytellers out there, this is really important. Craft your story slightly differently. In a Minds Eye Theater game, there are not, at least what we were doing, there were not modules. The world was far less formed. It was The general conceit was pick the town you're in, 
like really in, like we played in Portland, Maine, increase its population by 20 to 30% over the maximum population it could hold. And that is Mind's Eye Theater, Portland by night. So the, it, the place is much more crowded, but it's effectively the same town. You're, you created a sandbox instantly because every street that's in your actual town is in your fictional world. Somebody says, I want to go down 4th Street and check out uh, the bars in the old port. That's actually there. You could literally take out a real map of the yeah. real town and see it. Right. I, I want to go to $3 Dewey's and get some popcorn. Mm. It's there. Uh, well, $3 Dewey's I, isn't there anymore, but that's okay. Yeah, well, $3 Dewey's isn't there anymore, but in my world, it would always be there. Love that place. Um, it takes the but, it takes the world-building onus off of the storyteller, so that frees up more time for them to work on plots, too. That's part of why LARPing was such a key environment for us yep. to learn these lessons. Yep. Yeah, and, but the cool part about that was that allowed freedom. Players wanted to go someplace. Storyteller had a general idea of where it was, what they could do for it where it could be, what it looked like, or whatever. When I later on, when I played in the first game I ran was out of Boston. Why did I choose Boston? I used to live there. And and where did most of my characters come from? The South Shore. Why? I used to live there. It was easy to storytell for an area. I picked storytellers that knew things about the specific areas they were storytelling in so they could could storytell that. When I ran my werewolf game, years later, which was a sequel to my Boston game, I had several of the characters come from the Boston area and the Boston game because that's where the players in those roles came from. And the story took place in the town of my actual birth because I knew it very well. And and, And I world of knighted it, but it was that same world. It allowed me to say, I want to go here. I want to go there. Where would I go to find X? Where would I go to find Y? Right. Everybody felt like it was a sandbox, and I'm using sandbox as code word for good game because I always had an answer. What that tells you and how you translate that to the tabletop game is just be prepared. Right. You can sandbox game a world that's as filled in as, uh, as Forgotten Realms. Be prepared for everything, right? You, but you as a storyteller have it upon you to know what things are in each area you have to know the overall story so you can get people there right and to be honest i'm going to be straight up don't be afraid to tell them if they go in a direction if you've done your job if you've done your homework if you haven't just sat around and you know came up with one plot line with maybe one backup plan that's kind of half baked and they go off for plan z well then you didn't do your job and it's on you but if you've been working your butt off and you've been doing a good job of creating a vibrant world and you've got a main adventure, a backup adventure, and a couple of quirks that could go different if they zig when you thought they were going to zag, and then always have one totally different off the rails. They decided to go randomly down a trail in the woods and counter ready to go. If you've done all of that and they and they like get in a boat and sail to the Forbidden Island that you haven't developed at all yet, for their fun and yours, don't be afraid to tell them, hey guys, my bad. I mean, that's so far afield I didn't expect you to. If you want to go there, we can do that, but I'm going to need another session to do it. Because if you half-ass it, you'll ruin it for your players, too. And this is where I would usually say, if you have absolutely nothing, go that route. But if you want to take it to the next level, listen to the podcast episode we just recently did on exploration and utilize some of those techniques. If they are taking a path you didn't expect, now's a great time to take out your 
pre-roll tables, your expert, your your wilderness exploration pillar type stuff, and say, now we're role playing the path there. You may not often do. Uh, here's what happened along the road between towns, but if you don't have the next town prepared, that is a great place to put in that kind of encounter. You know, thanks, Lee, for jumping off there because you're right, and I said that the wrong way. I didn't mean just give up. What I meant was yeah. like as a step along the way where we are now, we'll try to find a way to make it work out. But as we got this way, as you're learning, you know, when you're trying to work your way up, don't be afraid to admit it, admit it. If you get in over your head to your players, they'll appreciate that more and a better attempt when you're a little bit more prepared at it than just a night of cluster. Yeah. And honestly, look at the clock. Look at your time. I have often been. Oh, my party went left to field. Right. And I'm looking at the clock. If they go left to field and it's a half hour into a four hour session, I'm going to give them a bunch of encounters along the way. If we are 30 minutes from the end of the session, I'm going to give them a cliffhanger and end a little early and saying, Hey guys, I don't want to dig into the next bit too early because we're not going to get far enough into it. Right. We're going to end here a few minutes early. Solid play. Let's commit. So let's talk uh, or whatever. Let's, let, let, let's, uh, let's handle this. Right. So you've got some techniques that you can use to manage time as a storyteller. If you know, they're going a field run an encounter. If you've got a lot of time, if you have less time, look at where you are, whether you're milestone, if you're not doing experience, this is where milestone is amazing, by the way. And you are, and they were close to where you would need them to be. And they're going to field anyway. So they're not on book. Give them the level now. Say, hey, look, we're going to end here real quick. When we come back into session, you're going to arrive. But this is a great time. I'd love for everybody to level up while we're still at the table. There's only 20 minutes left anyway. Yep. Now, as far as your players see, all it was is, wow, we get to level up. And he's right here. I can ask all my questions. <laughs> Rockstar play yeah. right there. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and, I, and like, they're, up in, they're up in it. And... uh those who are listening to my voice, I have done this in both of my current ongoing campaigns at least twice. Like, I did not know what the <laughs> I was going to do. <laughs> but I knew well enough that my players are yeah. all in for the ride if I maintain my cool. And that's that's the key. Mm. Maintain your cool. That's absolutely fabulous. I mean, so that ver- that happened... A very similar situation happened at my last game, actually. So I'm running my normal my normal monthly uh, uh, D&D game, and the players rather... So they, they, they made it from point A to point B. They were at the town, and then from, from the town, they needed to make a two-day trek uh, basically through the field and forest with the hex map and encounters and all that sort of stuff to get to this cave that they have to investigate. Uh, and I had written in that they were going to stay the night in the town, and shenanigans were going to happen because you know shenanigans they happen in towns and so but my players instead decided that you know what uh it's only a little bit afternoon time let's get started and we will find some place in the woods to camp uh and i was like well i didn't bring any of that terrain because i didn't figure that we were going to start that until next fine all right no worries we'll go ahead and start that um and you know and they made it to like uh they made it to like this bridge and i was like man okay there's like an hour left i don't want them to make it all the way to the cave just yet like i need because i there are still (laughs) there are still shenanigans to come in that set so 
you know, I I gave them an in, like uh, they were about to cross the cross. You know, they were at a bridge to go ahead and cross a river. I decided to go ahead and throw an encounter on that bridge. I was like, you know what, I can take an encounter and I can make it. I can make it last for an hour. You know, um, by changing the number. You know, I had to go ahead and like uh, they fought a couple of guys and some people escaped and then more people came and that kind of thing. So I was definitely playing with time on that level and got it right to the very end and got it to exactly where I wanted them to start next game, which is fine. Um, But yeah, there was definitely that moment of like, oh, okay, this is going faster than I want it to. I need to slow it down, but not in a way that's going to railroad them and not in a way that's going to make them feel like I'm taking away their choice. They can decide where to go, but I've got to figure out some way to go ahead and slow them down and how do you do that you ask ask out there our loyal listeners mm. that's about that back pocket encounter i was talking about a little while ago and it's yes. easy it's not hard this is a pro tip if you're playing in a temperate forest area with a coastline pick each of your environments maybe three or four that they're likely to go to that's all you need use the table in the back of the dmg and look up encounters creatures that they would encounter by environment Pick some cool ones that fit and kind of go together. It could be a pack of wolves in the woods. It could be any form of goblinoid in the mountains or any other, you know, anything that works. And set up a CR encounter based on your current party level. Have that in your hip pocket. They're super easy. Just have it ready to go. And no matter which way they go, you've got an encounter you can just throw down. And to take, take that tip and level it up a bit especially in this virtual world, or if you're really on the fly and you didn't have it, D&D Beyond is an excellent way to do that. You can put in the advanced search options on the monster thing. You can pick your CR range, and they recommend a range low to high in case you need minions in it versus a boss monster or what have you. And then you pick the environment. So now you pick Arctic, or now you pick Desert, or now you pick Swamp. And then it'll bring up everything within your listed sources that you've purchased on the game within that block. So now you can pick the, the the type of creatures that fit your encounter and your encounter range. And those are just two methods. That's true. Digital tools really open up the world for improv because you yep. can you can just have so many options in front of you, so many name lists, so many search engines. D&D Beyond is amazing. Yep. Oh, totally. Yeah, there are so many different ways to do that. Uh, they go left instead of right. You want a town? Donjon is a great. Oh, Donjon amazing. It'll build you a town yeah. in seconds, and it'll. And if you chick, click the right buttons, you've even got NPCs right in there, so you can go off the rip and save that bad boy because now you're NPCs. Because the next time they come back, you're gonna need them. Those NPCs are locked in. That which brings me to my my the the point I want to make when you're sandboxing in general and with the types of things that the three of us are talking about tonight. If you have to improv a situation, they go left instead of right in an environment where you didn't actually have anything set before they go there. Now it's there. It's all movable. It, it like right. It may have been you may have not known where you're going to put it, but once you place it, once you put the town of Oopenshire on the <laughs> left of that fork in the road, right. Oopenshire is going to be there forever. And if Oopen forever. But up and till if then, Oopen- if they go right yep. instead of left, Oopenshire can move. Yep. But once it's there, if Oopenshire had a sheriff, two guards, and a drunken bartender named Gomley, guess what? If you build that town, say, using Don John or whatever, and we were not sponsored by them, 
Hashtag call your boys TTJ. But we should throw some of those links that we're talking about into the show notes to give them some tools. Yeah, we will. But if you happen to do do, do that, it'll and you it, and that's what comes up. You'll have them there. There are innumerable tools that you use. Like I said, once you build something, once you place something, once the players interact with a place, with a person, with a name, with an environment, that's there. Yeah. Unless it's at sea and it's a moving boat. Once you place it, you have placed it. And unless you have some world event or some mechanism built into your campaign world to cause a town to move, it needs to be there and it needs to be consistent because if a year later or two campaigns later, three years later, and it's the same campaign world, a player who sat at the first table goes left and he sees Gomley behind the same bar, polishing the same dirty glass, just as drunk as he was the first time. He's going to be like, that's cool. And that's what, and that's what you're going for. Oh yeah. You want that. That's cool. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, like, there were no Sahugan in that river until my players crossed the bridge and I needed to slow them down. Like, and that was totally like, okay, so we've got an hour left. You talk about Donjon. Like, Donjon was my absolutely my go-to. Like, okay, so uh, I need to slow them down. I need to throw some bad guys. Uh, it's a coastal range. I've got five level three PCs. I don't want it to be too difficult. I want it to be something that they can get through. But I also want it to be something that after they're done, they need to take a long rest because then I can end the game. Uh, and yeah, sure enough, it's like, okay, so giant toads. No, I don't want giant toads. Vampire mist. Eh, it's not really what I want. Oh, so again, bingo. That's what I want. Fish-based creatures jumping out of the river, throwing spears at them. Fabulous. It exactly, but they weren't there until I needed them to be. And so, you know, that's that's those tools become really, really important when you're talking about that. Earlier today, I ran one of my two ongoing games, and there was a big role-playing scene with a huge big bad for the well, it wasn't even a big bad, big antagonist for the for the world. And the players had their interactions in a near fight with him. Uh, and they did that. And they were sent on their way. Uh, they hit a maze. And I knew I wanted a second encounter. And I knew in planning for the session, I would want a second encounter. But I wasn't sure how much time I was going to have and what I would need. Because it was really a fluid moment in the campaign. So I planned what I was going to place. I had a map for the encounter area. And it was within this labyrinth that the players were in. So when I realized I had 45 minutes, I had time for a good, for a decent fight, but it wasn't supposed to be a career ender fight for the party, but it was supposed to be something that they would be worried about. In comes four Smilodon Sabertooth Tigers, which is a homebrew that I put together for somebody else on commission. So I, I had built this. So it's a little bit different than your standard DMG Sabertooth Tiger. This particular uh, Sabertooth Tiger, there were four of them. And my plans were there could be anywhere from as low as two, depending on where the party was, to as many as eight, depending on where the party was. The magic number was four. It took them about three rounds to deal with. They did some damage. The party got to shoot their shot. Uh, very cool role play at the table. There was a point in, in, the, in the fight where... One of the parties says, if we were in person, I would give you a high five. You know, it, this, it was what I wanted out of the event. It was a fun, not overly challenging, but challenging encounter. And it filled that time slot perfectly. 
But it came down to they're in a labyrinth. They had to pick a direction. Their choices had consequences. What they recognized and didn't recognize allowed them to be better ready. So some of the player choices very early on in the game that give them better perception, things like that, allowed them to not be surprised by this pack of saber-toothed tigers. So they weren't surprised when they cut, saw them as a straight-up fight. There wasn't an initial attack. And these things got the first attack off. This could have gone a different way. So this is where player agency had to do with player choices. They got to select what they selected. They got to make the decisions they, they, they made. I even structured some of the responses to questions based on the skills they used. So somebody saying, hey, uh, if I use survival or nature, which would be better? And I said, don't ask me that question. Tell me what you're going to do and how, and then I'll let you know which of the skills you should be would count for that. And so their choice and description gave them the skill in question. He's like, oh, wow, great, because I have a plus nine in that versus a plus four. That plus nine got him the answer. The party was not surprised. Yep. That's player agency. Yes, absolutely. Right. Flipping around their question to make it less about the mechanic and more about what their character wants to do, that is absolutely giving them – it's giving their character identity and reestablishing their agency. That's fantastic. Right. And I mean, that's really what all of this that we've been talking about is, is it's all about player agency. The reason that it matters if you have a plan when they, if they zig, when they should have zagged is because you've got to give them a choice. You've got to allow them to make the decision, not tell them where they have to go. Yeah. Write mini scenes and be prepared for a couple of different scenarios. You learn to be flexible after you make a few mistakes, but you have to pay attention to your players and what they want because your players are your game. I mean, without them, you're going to be sitting around your dining room alone, talking to yourself, rolling dice occasionally, and maybe scribbling some notes like a madman. So That's why nobody plays Yahtzee by themselves, yeah. Yeah, so if you're paying attention to their wants and their needs and their mannerisms, and you've heard that from us many times before, right? Listen to your players, give them what they want, and you write your story and your plot to benefit their characters, and then you plan and work their skills in, just like Lee was saying, that's how you make them feel like their choices matter and they're involved and actively engaged in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as importantly, it's not even that they feel that their choices matter. That choice did matter. Oh yes. Absolutely. Me- it should matter. I said, yeah, that yeah, yeah. There was, there was a mechanical advantage to the choice the player made both the choices of character generation that got on the skill, the choices after character generation between levels one and level 10, where they are as far as what skills to build on or what, what stats to upgrade or not upgrade. And then the choice of how to do, how to take on the task, which equaled a given skill that he had the best benefit in. There were so many choices along the way that was, even though it was a single D20 rule, awesome moment in my game. An awesome moment for that player because that player in that moment was able to sense I don't know if they would articulate it or not. You'd have to, you really have to talk to that player. But they had a sense that I did the right things to get the right result. Mm. You know, I did well here. And when your players can say that, they feel good about the game. I think this is where, and sorry to kind of go on, but I think this is where I want to point out that we have, uh, we mentioned earlier that this is a type of conversation that happens all over the place. Lots of different people talk about it. I wanted to mention one content creator that everybody who listens to this podcast probably knows, Matt Coville. 
Uh, we're going to link a specific episode that he did on this topic, and not because of his general thoughts on the entire topic, but because of one point in particular. Matt Colville posited that the reason why people feel railroading is bad and sandboxing is good has less to do with what rail railroading is and sandboxing is and more to do with player agency and consequences. In other words, players who make bad choices and get caught out on those bad choices are more likely to say they were railroaded than not. Right, because, you know, if they killed everybody's favorite drunken bartender and were railroaded out of town, you know, it's got to be your fault. Yeah, yeah, they're going to say the DM didn't want us to be in this town or the DM really liked that character too much, so he's railroading us. And it wasn't, you murder hoboed your way through this town, and now the people in this town are reacting as people in a town with a bunch of murder hobos would right. actually react. But that's what my player would do. <laughs> he used that very quote, if I remember correctly. You know, and, and 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 to which I would say, to which my sheriff would say, as the stocks were closed <laughs> before the guillotine comes down. Yeah, yeah, it may be what you would do, and this is what I would do. You know, it might be what your character would do, but if what your character would do is rob the entire—I've said this before—but rob the entire party blind and disappear in the middle of the night with all of the horses. You also are going to find yourself sitting at home alone at your dining room table, talking to yourself, rolling dice rolling and dice, scribbling exactly. in a pad like yeah. a madman. Yeah, yep. exactly. So uh, when I was listening to that and uh, it was after we planned this episode, uh, well before we recorded, but after we planned it, it dawned on me that that's so true. While I have had episodes where I was the railroader and I really was, I was doing it badly. I was doing the thing badly, right? While I have had moments like that, I've been on the other side of the table also. I have made similar, I have made agency mistakes on my end where I just played it wrong. And there's a consequence for playing it wrong. You know, sometimes you call the king an asshole in a court full of people that are going to kill you for calling the king an asshole. Right. That's not railroading. That's a con, that is me exercising my player agency and the world acting the way a logical and well thought out world should act. While we say all these things about give the players what they want, let them do the thing, let you know, try to create all these contingencies and all that, that doesn't mean storytellers should be out there tossing out all reason and logic simply because the players want to go murder hobo or simply because the players want to crack a joke when, when they should be in game. If that's what you and your players want to do, hey, we're not going to judge you. If you want to murder hobo an entire town and you guys are good with a nice evil party that bathes in people's blood. We're not really going to judge. It's just not for us. Yeah. You know, in, in live action role playing, we have this symbol where we hold up uh, a, an O and that means out of game. And when we were playing, uh, we would often say, if you're going to, everything you say is in character, unless you hold up the symbol. And the idea was everything is in game. So if you cut a joke like Monty Python and you're in front of the big bad, guess what? You just cut a Monty Python joke because you weren't holding up the symbol. Honestly, since a lot of the players I play with are previously at, at tabletop games were also live action role players, they will often see me do that when I want to cut a joke. Like I, just I still do too sometimes. 20 years later, I will do this because I know I'm telling a joke and I have to signify to other people, this is not my character. Yeah, because it was beaten into us. <laughs> yeah, because I, I've done the thing. Like I said, I've done it wrong a few times. I have cut the wrong joke at the wrong time. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. and then, yeah, so 
Uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Look, not every table is going to be a serious, this is gritty role playing. There's room for fun at the table, too, and jokes. Yes, You know, make room for the game. Don't overtake it. However, if you're in the middle of a great role-playing scene, if someone's in there talking with the king uh, and and it's it's flowing really well, persuasion is happening without dice rolls, don't be the asshat that cuts a fart joke. Mm. Or the Glenn who forgets to mute his freaking mic and starts talking to somebody off to the side because I do that. And I, I hate that I do. I'm sorry. Yeah. Guys. I mean, look, to everybody who's di- played with me that I've done that to, I'm sorry. Digital games have have brought in a new complication with doing any of this stuff, right? It's like, that's yep. just yep. like, it's like having digital meetings. I mean, it's like the, the same level of complication has come up and it's, it's not, uh, you know, let, let, let he who has been on a meeting and, you know, farted. And not knowing that he wasn't on mute, right? You know, he who has not done that, raise your hand. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to talk about is sort of um, it's related to to player agency and it's related to railroading, although it's less related to sandboxing. And, and so we have started a actual play campaign with using the Candlekeep Mysteries, which are... They are recipes. They are adventures in a jar, right? They have a defined yep. start and they have a defined end. Um, and you know, Liwanika, I remember when we before we even started, you had said on numerous occasions, both on the podcast and off, about how how module how module games weren't really your thing. That you you didn't you didn't like having to run kind of the linear narrative of, of a module game. And and all these mysteries do have. Uh, have linear quests. There, there are branches and there are loops and there are things like that. Um, and I, I have found that as the, as the person you know, blessed and lucky enough to be the storyteller for the first several that we've run, you know, that's that is a challenge. It is a challenge to figure out how to seamlessly bring characters who have agency or to bring players who have characters and are playing those characters with agency how do you seamlessly bring this group of people into how do you put them in the jar shake them around in the jar and then let them out of the jar without them ever realizing that they were in a jar in the first place right like that's that's the magic of of you know i mean Again, like we got a lot of really great compliments about how great the first game was. Um, and I think that was. And that's only part of it. That was literally just the first part. It was just of the it. first part of it. You know, they, exactly. We have, and that's, that's the funny thing is that like, so the first, the first AP session is like three episodes long. At the end of the first episode, we haven't even started the quest yet. <laughs> right. So, so, so it took me, it took me an hour of game, of, of, of game time to get to get y'all into the jar. Right. Um, and I, and, and that's really, that's been kind of, there's definitely been the challenge on, on my part. Yeah. My response to the lead in slash question is, is that that's exactly it. I think you have perfectly encapsulated where the challenge lies yeah. with that process. And that's why I have not done it very often. I used to do it a lot when, when D and D was largely Greyhawk and forgotten realms was just starting because I had a map that had every Greyhawk module plotted where it was on the Greyhawk map, right? I would, whenever players went someplace, that was my sandbox. If they went to a place, I would take out that module. They didn't have to play the module, 
but everything in that hex or everything in that town was in this module. Like they would have the town, would have the NPCs, whatever. So I had my sandbox built. I had all my contingent. If I didn't know what to do with my story, I could literally run the module or I could just run the players adjacent. And often what I did is I said, there is some party playing the module right. as written. Right. Since I felt modules were way too track filled, and I didn't like my players in it. They were doing their own thing. Meanwhile, somebody was playing the module. And then I would frequently let them see the people playing the module and they could take over, they could aid and then join the module or they could just say, I don't know, why the hell is he doing that? And go on and do their own thing. That was my way of handling that, right? So now- That's an interesting sandbox module blend. I'm going to give that to you. That's interesting. I'm not sure that I would uh, try to take it on. Well, that's you played that when you played Anrick Hammerfist. That was exactly what you were playing. Like some of the things you came across, the big battle that had the the thunder that came forever. That was part of a module that you all interrupted and did your own thing with. So it's owned like it, is actually what we did. Yeah, we owned. Yeah, it. you owned it. Um, you know, so it was uh the 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 other the module where the cart ended up tumbling where you threw the hammer and it killed two of the player characters or an axe I cut or whatever. The rear axle and it went tumbling end over end and I yeah. killed poor Brian's character against it, a tree. Yeah. That was yes, awesome. That you killed one? him though. You decided that, not me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the the dice took that character's life away. But that was a module that you guys were playing alongside of. Like where you were just like in the middle of something that was going already going on. But going back to Candle Keep, I think what you did a masterful job of was you recognize it doesn't work if you just say your characters are here, start. Yeah. You gave us a way to get there. You built us in. We met. You wrote an intro. from the module. You wrote an introduction. That's step one. Step two, which we're going to get to in the AP, but is basically you allowed players to do their thing. But what I think really helped that situation is the cast. Oh, God. The players I are mean, amazing. Yeah. I, I, I honestly don't think it works with the wrong cast. The wrong players at the table don't do that no matter what you do, right? It has to be that concert because what I think is we had a very strong group of role players, just like we're, you're a strong storyteller. We had a strong group of role players who recognize this is a module. I'm going to play my character agency. I'm going to do the things my character will do. But to Glenn's uh, point about if you've got options, choose the option that keeps you together. Yep. In some respect, they're also choosing the option that keeps them in the jar. They can see the walls of the jar. They know, but they also know that everything that's fun is within the jar. Thank you. So they're choosing. The players are choosing the options that keep them in. So it's like even me, and I think of any player at your table during this AP that went off the rails, and I'm not going to spoil it in case this episode airs before the AP episode <laughs> that shows it airs. Um, um, and I'm going to hold out my left hand, and you'll know what I'm talking about. When I made the call, and I didn't think anybody would go along with it, when I made the call of Simeon to always go to the left, which is an in-joke between myself and the player playing the Dragonborn that we've had <laughs> since we were kids yeah. Kil- reading one of our Kilvarex, favorite yeah. comic books. Yeah, when with uh, the player who plays Kovarex, one of our favorite comic books growing up was uh, a one-shot with Nightwing and Flash, Wally West, because they're best friends. And they're in this huge maze. And Wally does his Flash, 
Sting goes through the maze, and when he gets to the end, Nightwing, doing his best Batman, is already waiting for him. And while he's like, what, what, how do you... And, and Nightwing just tells him, he goes, it's a maze. All you have to do is always keep your hand on the left. You'll always get out. <laughs> right. And that became an entire subplot point for the entire module. Oh, it once did. Once we it were did. inside the mansion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so y'all yeah. y'all get into that with episode two it, if you haven't already by the time it this real deep into, into episode two. When, when, um, when, when Illidaz starts forming his uh, his left-hand-based religion. Right. Like, There's oh, an yeah, entire yeah. religion like it, springing up around this. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. It became, his, yeah, it became funny. That's, I'm, not, I'm not sure how it's going to work in episode two. There are no walls to go ahead and keep your left hand on. So That's so, okay. Yeah. We'll come up with new shtick in episode two. Oh, I have no doubt. <laughs> but I love that you brought us here because this is one of the places that I, I wanted to make a connection um, because it really, really, really highlights the Candlekeep game and the fact that you brought it up, how storytellers and players come together. It brings us right back to the social contract that it's everybody's responsibility to have fun. So you got to know what you're getting into when you sit down at the table. And this right here, this piece and any of the other pieces where we talk about what we've done as players is why even if we're doing a storyteller episode, our player listeners out there, there is still good content here for you. How do you go into a game knowing that you're already set up and this is the way it's going to be? A module is a railroad and shrink wrap. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yep. It's written 100% point A to point B, very little room for turns. Sometimes they have varied outcomes if they're good and well-written modules or conditional victories. But regardless, a module is a railroad and a shrink wrap. Why didn't we feel railroaded? Because we knew we came to have fun as players. We knew we were going to sit down at that table and it didn't matter what Josh threw at us. We were going to choose to have a good time. So when I'm playing Sprocket, I'm not thinking things like, why the hell would Sprocket want to go into this mansion? I mean, what's the point? Instead, I'm thinking, dude, we're going in this mansion. So why would Sprocket think it's fun? I'm looking at a situation not going, <sighs> I'm going, hmm, how can I make this more interesting for me? Yep. Yep. And that's the player agency perspective that you need to really bond with your storyteller and help these collaborative world building, shiny, happy people holding swords and daggers and spell books and hands all together. That's where it comes from. You get that magic when everybody's sitting there going, not how can I screw the DM or frustrate him or not? How can I screw a player or not? Why would I even be here? Why would I even be here? Drop that perspective and instead say, I'm here. Let's have fun. Yep. Good. And that's what a real good, that's what a good role player brings to your table. And that's why we were able to present that in Cattle Keep. Yeah. Generally speaking, a character who asked, why would I do this? Wouldn't be an adventurer anyway. Right. But how many times have you gotten and, that question? <laughs> every, you know, it's like now that doesn't take away from the, from a storyteller responsibility to provide reasonable motivations, right? You have to provide a decent MacGuffin. You have to provide a reasonable issue for being there. Uh, and I think Josh said it right. And, and forgive me if I misquote, but this is how I felt it came across is here's the conceit. You're going to candle keep for a reason. You as players building your characters, pick the book you're bringing and come up with the reason you're going there. So us being there had a reason to begin with that was built into the design of the character, right? It was part of the character's story, backstory, whether it was part of their mechanical background or not. Uh, I think most of us chose to weave it into that mechanical background in some fashion or crafted our, our backstory out of that background 
But generally speaking, the conceit was we want to be there. And we all were inquisitive people seeking a bit of intelligence. I can't speak to the construction of any character in the game other than the one I played. But I know for a fact I did not make intelligence and wisdom my dump stats. Right, right. Uh, sometimes you choose to play a character that way on purpose. Yeah. Just for I fun. Mean, you know? I once played, just as, as one of those mistake funny stories, I once decided to make a wizard that was stupid smart but had a horribly low wisdom. And part of his horribly low wisdom was he was insanely brave and acted without thinking. Now, mind you, this poor wizard did die, I think, in the second adventure when we heard screaming off in the darkness and he jumped up and said, come on, we must help and ran off by himself. But it was fun while he lived. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and at the end of the day, you chose your agency and you accepted with humility and a lot of and a smile of mirth on your face. And I said, well, I guess he gets eaten. It's what he would. <laughs> and I even I think I said, it's what he would have done. <laughs> <laughs> See, there is a positive way to turn that. <laughs> yeah. It's not all about murder hobo. Well, hobo right. Because, I mean, we have we have criticized that line on, on numerous different episodes now, where it's like, oh, it's what my character would have done, you know? And like all it's things... It's an important perspective. Like all things, that perspective has a place in some games. Like, if you are just... If you're playing a game where that is sort of... Where, where the... Uh, where ridiculous actions or whatever are are par for the course, and that's just kind of how the party goes along. And, or even if it's a com- if it's a comedy game, you know that kind of thing. Oh yeah, it's all about the, the it vibe and the style. It's all about the vibe and the style, right? If you, you know, if you're playing a serious game, and all you know, like I said, like when everyone's asleep, you know, the the elven the elven rogue decides to go ahead and pickpocket all the all the humans while they're sleeping, uh, and then disappear, and then the you know, and, and then that that's it, like. That has less of a place at most games, you know? Right. But uh, an important distinction there, because I do agree with you, and I know 100% you're going to agree with me, but the way you stated it, it's important to realize, though, that we actually think character perspective is important in every game. What would my character do is an important question you should always be asking yourself. Yeah. The joke is coming from when you let that question become an excuse. That's when it falls from a reasonable question a method of improving the game to a pejorative, which is how how am I actively choosing to make this game worse for the group as a whole? There are two, same statement, two entirely different ways to use it. I'm going to violate the social contract and then use that as a crutch to explain it. And as an example of how that can go horribly wrong, right? I would put myself in this position in a very recent game of Lee's. I play a character named Bodhi. He's a halfling. And he's been going through some changes, but um, our party is obsessed with evil daggers for some stupid reason. And there are some things you just can't do, no matter how much you want to, right? So one of our other characters, love you, Dalton, um, is obsessed with this dagger, even though you can see it shriveling and withering his hand like a zomb- like into zombified flesh, and he won't let go of it. And now he can't let go of it. As a desiccating, uh, as you watch, you can even smell it, is That's how gross. I describe the scene. That's gross. And I'm giving you all this story because it's okay to bring some conflict to your party if you can do it without taking it over the top and yeah. making it a point where now somebody's mad and doesn't want to play with you anymore, right? So in this situation, legit, the first thing that popped into my head was, bro, I'm going to chop it off. Like, I'm going to save his life. He's going to die right now if I don't chop his arm off. And Brody really would have thought, or Bodie, not Brody, my bad. Bodie really would have thought that. Um, and I warred back and forth. And finally, me and my fey raccoon, Pudge, we tackled him and miraculously me with my nine negative one bonus strength 
when's the strength check? And we've got him pinned down and I'm about to chop his hand off. I can't do that. It worked. It added drama to the scene. But if I chopped his hand off, there's a chance that the character, the player playing Dalton would have been okay with it. But there's a really big chance it would ruin our relationship and screw the party. So instead, I dramatically brought the hatchet down into the concrete beside it and said, I just couldn't do it, bro, and told the cleric that he needed to save him. You can bring drama. You can act against each other. Just don't screw each other at the end of the day. And don't try that unless you're experienced enough to do it without hurting feelings. And there, There is a piece of that social contract that needs to be brought in. And I think uh, Glenn in that scene, and I was a storyteller for that particular game, did a fantastic job with it. Right? I warred over it back and forth, like even out loud yeah. with the party for a minute. I'm like, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> there was actually conversation about it. And I actually <laughs> the the... I believe the player actually said, no, man, go for it. I, lo- I like it. That makes sense. I get it, yeah. And but if you looked at his face, the look in his face and in his eyes, I was looking at his camera when he said it. He was saying, I yeah. get it, and I don't hold it against you, but it would have hurt him. But yeah. he would have been okay with it if we gave him a knife hand instead. But it was one of those scenes where I, uh, you know, I don't always let player, player, player v. player happen in games that I run. I don't yeah. usually think that that's the best way to go. But this was so ingrained in the story, and I held so much trust in Glenn and the other player that I let it play out. And what I found was everybody involved made the right decisions. Now, I was kind of surprised you let it play out. I was expecting you to stop it. Because Glenn has seen me stop many a thing like that. And I might have stopped it. And like I said, it came down to my trust in the players. So as storytellers, keep that in mind. Your level of trust with your players and players, your level of trust with your storyteller is very important to this discussion we're having. Uh, And interestingly enough, that whole scene took place because of my warring with myself over the railroading and sandboxing issue. The whole scene took place because I threw an in-joke in the game the session before <laughs> uh, the party was doing a thing. I put some dagger that was out of reach and in a bad spot that looked like it would be dangerous to get to. And I made it look and I looked real cool. And I'm like, I just want to be enough for them to like, think about it, but I didn't think they'd actually go for it. And then they went for it. I'm like, well, damn. as soon as you said, there's a dagger in the ice. I knew we were screwed. Yeah, I'm like, there's a dagger. It's embedded in the ice. It's below you. you have, you'd have to rope down to it. And they're like, rig me up. Nobody said that word. That's a famous phrase. That's a famous phrase. phrase. <laughs> but but it, it was it was pretty close to that. And next thing I know, I've got half the party on a rope down the thing. It was hanging from the Goliath, holding on to the walls. Hanging from the Goliath, like holding people. the walls, <sighs> ice, thousand foot drop. It was a mess. But it all stemmed from... I was coming down to the end of the session. I wanted a real quick encounter. I figured I'd give them a, a weird little trap. They'd realize it was too dangerous and move on, but they went for it. And I'm like, and we're going to end scene here. And I spent two weeks building an entire episode of this show, uh, of this game, crafting from scratch a big bad <sighs> for this scenario because they were so invested in just that lead up. I was like, I need to repay that investment with something freaking cool. And that's where sandboxing comes in, because he threw in something random based on his character's agency perspective and previous choice, Yeah, and he put it in the game. And it created an amazing scene. We had a lot of fun with it. So here's the other side of that equation, though. So I, last game, 
had an NPC make basically a threat to the party, right? Um, the NPC was trying to... Uh, the NPC is... Uh, she's a little gray, right? I like gray. Um, I, I put a lot of gray in my case. Yeah, I don't right? think choices should be easy in black and white. Right. And she has definitely made some choices which are bad, right? She has definitely done some things which are bad. Uh, and even she would admit that they were bad, but they served a purpose, right? Kind of thing. At the end of the day, the the this person went to the party and who who like they all know each other like they they know the party knows the npc um and the npc said look i know where you're going i know that this is a death trap i know a secret way in that will allow you to go get just the treasure get out and not have to deal with everything that's there just let me help you but the party at this point knows that she has done so many bad things that they're like, mm, we don't trust you. No, absolutely not. Like to the point that they decided to not spend the night in the city where they knew she was for fear that she would do something she was going to to them overnight. Right. So they were right. Like the players absolutely like saw right through my my screen of bullshit there. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, Didn't bail that one quite enough, huh? The, right. Well, the, the problem is that when they said no, Josh, in his fit of peak at the moment, said, you know what? That's fine. If you won't help me, there are 15 people here in the city that I can pay that will do it for me and they'll get there before you. So now the players are like, Did, is she really doing it? Are we going to run into this party of bad guys that they that this person hired? To go ahead and do the thing that we didn't want it. Oh man! Like and so now that they're like, like it's been, it's come up in conversation. Like oh uh oh well she said she's gonna do this. We need to do this faster. We need to get there and get out. You know kind of thing. Sounds like a party a party's gonna arrive on site with some exhaustion levels, uh and and under resourced because they had to rush to get I mean, there. Softened up for the bad well, guy. That, well, that's the thing is like I I haven't like honestly and. Sorry, players listening to the show. I haven't even decided whether or not this was an idle threat or not. Like, I haven't even decided. And like, well, I your players have given you a whole second subplot if you want it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I if I even want it, exactly. That, that's the whole thing. Like, if I want it, or or do I just want them to actually get through the thing that I've been that I've been trying to throw them since session one, right? You know, or or and hear me on this. If things go badly. They can now play the other when they have to make new characters. They can make the other party. Porcano <laughs> Lagos, right? Yeah, it's a, you know, right. That's actually not a bad idea either. Leonica actually make them play the bad guys. Yeah, that would be funny. Um, but I think something we should throw in really quick, just as a side note, pro tip, whatever we want to call it, tabletop journeys storyteller advice is um, how do you do that? You're doing the sandbox thing now, right? So. I can, I can hear what I'd be thinking out there. All right, I'm hearing them talk about all of these things, but that sounds really complicated. How the hell am I going to remember it all? If I come up with something randomly in the middle of the game on the fly, how am I ever going to keep track of that? Yeah. And the easy answer is notes, but there's important lessons there on the notes. Yeah. So I don't actually take notes, actually. that that I go a different route. Um, I record I record my game. So I do take notes. I take my notes after the fact, though. I record the game session. And then between game sessions, I will listen to that and I will take notes and I will take copious notes uh, and put them because, yeah. you know, like 
anybody else that runs a runs a homebrew sandbox world, I have a database that kind of tracks all these points of data, right? You know, the it things about various cities and everything like that. After session one, after a four and a half hour session one, I had five pages of notes of things that needed to go into the database because of things that the players had done or that I had introduced through gameplay or whatever. And so, so I do take notes, but I take notes after the fact. Um, I I don't try to take notes at the time. I'm going to disagree with you, Josh, because I've watched you take notes. And I don't usually be the person who says, no, I'm going to tell you how you're wrong. That's usually the job, but I'm going to. If I'm playing, because I take notes, but they're not very you're wrong. 100% right. Digital play has added a huge toolkit for us, and that's recorded play sessions. So we can mine it for detailed notes to plan future sessions. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is right there on the fly, right? When you just came up with that bartender's name because Lee challenged you for it. And in 20 minutes, when mm. somebody talks to him again, you're going to have to know it. Yep. Calmly. Right. I didn't remember the name. That's why I said drunken bartender, uh, because Gobble. I wasn't yeah. taking notes, right? Yeah. So as the, oh. as players, I, I, I am a crappy note taker as a player. I'm going to be honest. It's a shame of mine. I'm ashamed, but I'm a crappy note taker. But as a storyteller, I can't be. Yeah. You got to keep your notes. And what I really wanted to say about how you keep them is don't just do it on scrap paper. Don't just do it in the module on the corners. Don't just do it on a random page in your notebook because that's right after the stat sheet you copied down for all the guys that your party's about to kill that's going to get buried in your next page of notes. Have a session notebook or a section or a Google Doc for that set so that you can have it and always know where it is because otherwise you're going to be like me. Yep. True story. And you're going to be flipping through because I am a notebook office supply addict. It's also kind of a shame of mine. Um, and I have five or six notebooks. So I'll be trying to find my notes for that that I wrote in the book. And I have to flip through all of them trying to find it. So organize your notes with a dedicated spot. That was I it. will shout out to Rocketbook at this point in time. Um, so if you don't know what Rocketbook is, uh, listen to our uh, 2020 holiday episode, uh, which I think was like SideQuest 1 or 2. Yeah, right. So it's way back in the in – the, but go back and listen to the holiday episode. We talk about Rocketbook. Rocketbook is basically a Link reusable it. notebook. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure and put it in the show notes down below, but it's fabulous. I mean, like you take your notes. It's like a regular notebook. Use your cell phone, take a picture of it. It stores it into Google Drive. You can set it to save into certain folders. You can set it so that you make a certain icon on the page. And so it goes into a different folder based on that icon. It's it's fabulous. And so like, you know, I have different folders. I have different icons for, for every game that I'm in. Take a page of handwritten notes, click a picture, PDF gets sent in there. And it just gets That's saved. That's awesome. It's awesome, yeah. And yeah. they're starting to build in OCR technology also. So it's not just like a image of the PDF, but it's actually like a recorded Google Doc that is typable and editable. Uh, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. There you go. More actionable intel right there for yeah. how to run it yeah. when you're doing an online Rocket game with your, or Strongly just having recommend. PC out. And I use on my phone uh, Fang, which is a an app that I picked up uh, I got it from some other YouTube podcaster uh, who I got it from. I forget at this time. I want to say it was the Dungeon Coach. But with the fa FANG stands for Fantasy Name Generator. And it's very simple. It it, it has uh, a bunch of uh, options as far as names. You can do D&D, &D, Middle Earth, Warhammer, uh, Warhammer Fantasy, Warhammer 40,000, Starfinder, Elder Scrolls, World of Warcraft. It's got names for other things, places, animals. And it's got names for just about everything you can think of. You can go all the way into like cities, small towns, pirates, bandits. Cool. But what's really cool is when you start naming things, it's got a little die 
uh, icon that when you hit, it changes the name. If you hit plus, it saves that name. So if I clear my thing and I'm running a session, if I name somebody with this and I hit plus, their name is stored here forevermore until I clear it. Cool. So when I go to do my notes after the fact afterwards, at the very least, every name I saved is in here in the order I saved them. So as I'm going through and I just know, okay, they went to this place, this place, this place, I now have the names that are associated with each of them. What was the name of the town we came up with earlier in the episode? Somethingville. Uville, something. It had, it had a U. Unterville, Uberville, oh. Underville. Dude, we should have taken notes. Winterville. Yeah, we should have taken notes. I think it was Umpaville. Um, um, Unterville. Um, something um, like that. Yeah. 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 We're going to have to oh. go back in the edit and then we'll edit in that I knew it. <laughs> nope. So so that's at least we'll the, pretend. No, we'll just entirely. So that's that's the entirety of the point. Let, let's, let's try to put a cap on this here to go ahead and round out what it is that we've talked about here. So ostensibly we are talking about how to take sandbox worlds and navigate through them in such a way that does not railroad your players and allows them to maintain their agency right the the biggest takeaway i think that i want our listeners to to take away is that nothing is final until it has come out on the table right don't ever feel as the creator of that sandbox world that the nature of the sandbox world is more important than the game right the sandbox world does not exist except to serve the game so make sure your game is being served by the sandbox right that's a really important lesson and i think that that's if we talk about the failures that we have had when we've been storytelling, that has been where we have fallen down. Is that that feeling that my plot is so important that if it's not followed the way I want it to be, it's wrong. Want me to blow your mind? Yeah. The reason we think that is the same reason that all the other new new DMs, GMs, storytellers out there are going, I get it, but how? You know, it's because we learned to write adventures from modules yeah we've been running modules when we were first learning to storytell that's how you learn the rules yep. you start with the starting adventures then you pick up a couple of more you're still getting your feet wet you're not yep. really a storyteller yet yeah those train you the wrong way on how to write an adventure so then you find yourself trying to copy that yeah you're making modules instead of crafting adventures yeah and it's learning to grow past that that's going to take you to the next level of storytelling that we're talking about now so don't worry about it if you still have trouble with linear, but keep in mind that when we're talking about railroading, the biggest issue with railroading is how it feels. Yeah. It's not that the story has to be any different. It's that a railroad, the tracks are linear. Trains go from point A to point B. There are no breaks. There are no turns. There are no choices. Don't write your story that way. It can have the same plot points. Yeah. It is the difference between putting your players on that rickety thing that's got the things that go up and down or putting them in a luxury car with a bar and a meal. Your game better have the meal. That's the point we're trying to make. Put in the things that give them the meal. They may not have a choice on point A to point B or what point B looks like, but what they do have a choice in, am I sitting in coach? Am I sitting in first class? Do I have the red wine or the white? Am I having the steak or the fish? They get to choose the things that make the journey fun, right? They're going from here to here. And if you can give them that feeling and they had the buy-in as players, 
that this the goal of this game is to go from A to B. That's the goal. That's what we're here to do. They have that go that goal for that for that module or for that session. They know that goal and they buy into it and they're doing their part to do that. All you have to do is make sure everything else is is fun. And and you're not wrong. That was a good summary. But the the point I was trying to make that you cut, that you did miss. So I just want to restate it in case I didn't say it well. Um, was I was saying that a lot of the people out there are still learning, and I think it's important we can't just talk from the perspective of uberness not that we're always uber because sometimes we touch on uberness and other times we suck um but we can't just talk from the perspective of uberness somewhere out there there's a guy that's halfway between modules and sandbox so i'm trying to give a shout out to him and say bro no pressure if you're not up to serving a full three-course meal with two different protein options and what you've got is spaghetti buffet write the crap out of spaghetti buffet serve it up to your players and learn and grow it's okay you don't have to be at the top yet so yep build as it's you a, go it's about it's at the end of the day it's about adapting to what your players bring to the table bring to you know it's why i like such a collaborative story building style is because i i am i am welcoming and inviting my story to be modified by my players you know uh, just another quick example when we were doing candle keep the other day so you, we you made a comment about about the about the left wall right um, and how big a joke that came throughout the entirety of that game session. And it was after the game session was done that I realized that the game module, I, I think, I mean, I, I have not talked to the person that wrote it. So I, I, this is pure supposition on my part, but I am 90% sure that the module was written for players to go the exact opposite direction, to always go <laughs> right. And the reason for that, so, so if you think this happens, in, it, it happens, uh, it's either in session two or session three. I honestly don't remember when you guys come back, uh, when you guys go into the kitchen, right? That whole scene in the kitchen was supposed to be the plot exposition. You were supposed to meet them first, but because it was the fifth or sixth room you went into, by the point that you met them... They were supposed to be the clock and the candlestick. Everything, exactly. Everything that they had to say, you already knew. So that entire that entire scene, you talk about pulling stuff out of your butt, pulled out of my butt. There was no other reason for you to be there until you went there and I had to make up a reason. That's par for the course for us. Ignore the instructions and beat our heads against the wall till we figure it out. I mean, no, you guys figure you guys figured it out pretty quickly, right? <laughs> we did. Right? I mean, it was also a first level mystery. I mean, let, let's be honest. Like that was not it was not the most complicated mystery on the face of the planet. But again, the, those those characters, those NPCs that you met in that room served one purpose, and that purpose was to give you the plot. By the time you got there, you already knew the plot. You were halfway through it, you know? And so now it's like, oh, what do I do I now? I think it was more like, fun figuring it out than if it had been handed to us. Yeah, oh, totally agree. Totally agree. You know, and I, and again, I think that the, the the mystery was written kind of with, with uh, maybe that's a better way to say it, that the mystery was written for both opportunities, right? If, if you needed the plot handed to you, there was a kitchen that you could go to to go ahead and ask for help, right? Because the, the only people that lived in the, min- in the mansion were there. Interestingly enough, that's a great technique that was also mentioned. Never write a plot that there's only one way out. Yep. Give them some clues if you have to. You got to figure out a way that they can't just be stuck if they can't yep. figure it out. Exactly. So you, never should your adventure module, campaign, homebrew, or pre-written ever be 
either you get this dice roll, yeah, or you can't figure it Never out. Never make them roll so dice if they can't fail. Yeah, right. It, 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 you know, so because I think they'll roll a one. May, because I think what that was was whether you came to it first or second, it was designed to be the fail safe. That's the fail state. If you didn't make the rolls elsewhere, if we hadn't figured it out, that was going to save us. Yeah. Or if you happen to go there first, one way or the other, that was the fu- that was the fail state. Yep, that's that's fair too. Yeah, and, and I think that probably is where that comes from. Um, and it's just a happy circumstance that I, in my infinite geekdom, choose to remember one of three or four salient facts from Batman comics uh, <laughs> from my youth uh, that have very little real world application. But I think that's cool. It's still fun. And I it just created a great I, scene. I, it created a great scene, and hopefully many more. Oh, absolutely come. fabulous. So, all right, uh, let's put a cap on this for for tonight. I, I think we have we have talked a lot about this. There's a lot in this episode. Uh, hopefully, a lot of uh, a lot of good tips for you know for that uh, that storyteller that Glenn mentioned that is that has been working with modules and is getting into homebrew, uh, but not quite sure how to make homebrew work with with players. You know. No, no quest, no module, no homebrew world survives first contact with players. It will, the minute that players start playing in your world, your world will be irreparably changed. And that's something that you're going to have to get used to as a storyteller. So, um, Lewanika, any final words for this evening? Yeah. In addition to speaking to that storyteller who has just reached tier two, they're out of those beginning stages. They're a tier two storyteller. They have the promise of tier three and four before them. They see it and they're really looking, what's it going to take? Is it going to be a magic item that gets me there? Is it going to be learning some new skills? Is it going to be bumping my stats? Is it going to be reading the next book? I think that there's that. And I think this does a great job of giving options for all of those things. The answer is you can get to tier three through a multitude of methods. Here are several of the techniques that you can put into that toolbox. But it also speaks to the player that is at tier one looking to get to tier two. Like, how, how do I get into the games with the players that seem to be having all this kind of fun? How do I, how do I get to be a player uh, at the level that I'm seeing on YouTube or that I'm seeing in all these actual plays? Um, how do I do that? So part of it is recognize that the social contract includes and really must have you as a player, buy in to the glass jar, buy into the overall. You have to make the choices, the player and character choices that brings the game together, that keeps the party together, that goes into the story that was discussed in session zero. That's where the player responsibility comes into with this issue. And you can avoid feeling railroaded if you had that buy-in to begin with. Part of that is Speaking up when asked, what do you want? Being honest about what you want. Being honest about the things that you're looking for and what you like playing and what you're interested in playing and the, and the ways you'd like to expand. If you're honest in session zero, you're going to have a better experience in the game. It'll be easier for you to hold your end of the social contract. Yep. Glenn? So we did definitely cover a huge amount of, uh, a huge array of topics in the course of this episode and it's it's big enough that maybe at another point we dive into one of them a little bit more deeper like we could probably create an entire episode on advice on how to sandbox but this is a good you know jumping off point for a good general overall view and it brings up and ties together a lot of the other episodes we've done 
Um, Because while we're specifically talking about player agency and choice today, it's come up so many times previously in the way that people get into their roles and also the things that the storyteller needs to do in their role, because they're both roles, right? Thus our little tagline of make your next role legendary. doesn't matter if you're a storyteller or a player, right? It's all about working together, not necessarily always as a team, because, you know, you got to kill the bad guys the DM puts in front of you. But you're all working together to have a good time. So work together, you know, comes back to the social contract. But sometimes you might feel railroaded. If you're a player, keep in mind, again, DMs work hard. They may not have another thing ready to go. Maybe they're not quite two tier three yet, and they can't throw things off the cuff. That was a terrifying thing for me as a DM forever. I hated running games because if I didn't write everything, if I didn't have every detail penned, I felt unprepared. And that's, it'll break your mind trying to write out that many possibilities. So analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, At another, at another point, I'm sure that I'll go into a full on topic about analysis paralysis. It's a really big like thing for something that I do because I'm an overthinker. But where I'm going with this, just as the wrap up, is for DMs out there, keep in mind, sometimes when they say they're being railroaded, you're freaking railroading them. You know, if they've told you, and I was talking to the guys about this before the episode, if they've told you that Earl Thomas, let's not go hard in hand, that's somebody's character. Let's go with one of mine. If they say that Sir Anrick Hammerfist is an asshat and they don't like him and they don't trust him and they they have no interest in working with them stop trying to get him to give them quests he's not their benefactor do not have them arrested and court ordered to do the mission for anrick hammerfist listen to your players they'll tell you if you're going in a direction they don't like work together be flexible and let's have some fun all right fabulous words as always friends uh and uh yeah I guess let's wrap it up there. This is the first one of our uh, Roll of the DM episode. Uh, can't wait to see you guys tomorrow when we record uh, our next Candlekeep episode. Uh, and other than that, we will talk to you all later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our side quest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.